Welcome back to G.I. Pearl, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journals so you don't have to. Yeah, I know I've been away for a little while, so I guess you've been reading all those journals all by yourself. I'm here to help. This is episode 61 for the month of June 2023. And again, the format will be that I'll read a few articles and tell you what I think about them. You can always write to me at info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter at gi underscore pearls if you have any suggestions for articles you want me to read or if you have questions or comments about the papers that I've discussed here. All right, let's go to those articles, shall we? Eosinophilic esophagitis is thought to be a progressive disease that only gets worse without treatment. Diagnosis is pretty simple. You have more than 15 eosinophils per high power field on biopsies of the esophagus. You can also see it and score it using EREFs. So you have both histology and appearance as well as symptoms as possible endpoints in terms of treatment endpoints. Therapies include PPIs, topical steroids, elimination diet, and you dilate strictures when you can. Now, there is an IL-4 inhibitor that was approved for patients 12 years or older. And let me tell you, I get a flyer about this drug about every week in my office. So here's an interesting study, I think. Title is Efficacy of a Second PPI Course After Steroid-Induced Remission in EOE Refractory to Initial PPI Therapy. It was a retrospective study of only 18 patients who initially did not respond to high-dose PPI treatments but did achieve remission histologically on topical steroids. So these patients either didn't like the steroids or did not tolerate them. And then you needed to do something for them. They were offered elimination diet or another goal with PPIs. So remember these patients responded to steroids, but then decided not to use them, right? So when these patients declined the diet intervention and were put back on PPIs, Out of these 18 patients, 12 actually responded to PPI again. No more dysphagia, no more heartburn, low EREF scores after second dose of PPIs, even lower after the first try of PPI, which didn't work. And obviously, peak eosinophil count dropped below 15, again for these 12 out of 18 patients. Now, isn't that interesting? This is definitely not something I consider doing, trying PPIs for a second time. But now I may try it. This next clinical practice update is a prime example as to why these things are very useful, but really not guidelines and should not be treated as such. Clinical practice updates or best practice advice is done by experts in the field, but as always, not all experts in the field. So it's great to learn from the people with lots of experience, but this is not incontrovertible truth, of course. Having said that, now let's review the 10 statements of this clinical practice update on management of subepithelial lesions encountered during routine endoscopy, and it's published in CGH. 1. Forceps bite-on-bite or deep well biopsies or tunnel biopsies can sometimes establish a pathologic diagnosis of these subepithelial lesions. And this is self-evidence. If you can get some tissue, great. If not, you may need some other tool to get information. 2. EOS is the modality of choice to evaluate indeterminate SEL of the GI tract and or if non-diagnostic tissue biopsies are obtained. 3. SEL arising from the submucosa can be sampled using tunnel biopsies or deep well biopsies. 
EUS guided fine needle aspiration can be used, or EUS fine needle biopsy, or advanced endoscopic techniques like unroofing using endoscopic submucosal resection. Basically, if it's not too deep, use whatever you can get your hands on to get tissue. For SEL arising from the muscularis propria should be sampled, preferably using FNB or FNA, to determine if this lesion is a gist or a leiomyoma. 5. Endoscopic resection techniques have been described to remove SEL and should be limited to endoscopists skilled in advanced tissue resection techniques. This one is obvious. Don't do things you're not qualified to do. 6. Management of each SEL depends on the size of the lesion, histopathology, their malignant potential, and presence of symptoms. A bit of a sequitur here, but we like those. 7. SEL that have endoscopic appearance consistent with a lipoma or pancreatic rest and normal mucosal biopsies do not need further evaluation or surveillance. This is a bit controversial since there are many docs out there who believe that large lipomas, especially in the colon, are responsible for some symptoms and recommend resecting these large lipomas. 8. For SEL arising from the muscularis propria and are less than 2 cm in size, surveillance using EUS should be considered. 9. Gastric gists that are larger than 2 cm should be considered for resection. 10. Subepithelial lesions that are ulcerated, bleeding, or causing symptoms should be considered for resection. Aha, here's the symptom stuff that I was talking about, large lipomas. Well, there you have it, 10 very practical and straightforward statements. What others probably want to hear more, and is not addressed here, but I feel like it's very common, is what to do with rectal carcinoids that are tiny, that you remove, maybe burn the base, and the pathologist tells you that the margin is still positive. What the heck do you do with those? Chronic constipation, unlike IBS, is usually relatively easy to treat. More fiber, some off-the-shelf laxatives, some exercise and water, and usually you should be all set. Most grandmas won't be surprised that prune juice works for constipation, but here's a randomized trial from Japan of all places. Title is Prune Juice Containing Sorbitol Pectin and Polyphenol Ameliorates Subjective Complaints and Heart Feces While Normalizing Stool in Chronic Constipation, a randomized placebo-controlled trial, and it's published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. This was a randomized trial done in patients with Rome 4 constipation who were given prune juice or placebo that match flavor and color, about 40 people in each arm. And outcomes were mostly subjective complaints using gastrointestinal symptom rating scale to see if constipation has improved. Bristol chart was also used. Most notable was the finding that Bristol stool chart 1 stools pretty much disappeared in patients who were in the prune juice arm. On the GSRS questionnaire, constipation improved, heart stools improved, and there was no difference in diarrhea. So those complaining that prune juice will make them have diarrhea and fart a lot may be right, but at least in this study there was no significant difference. I guess this is much safer and cheaper alternative to many of the drugs that are about $500 per month that effectively treat constipation. Oh, and when looking at conflict of interest, this study was funded by the Miki Corporation of Japan, which is a diamond seller. Not sure what the link between diamonds and prune juice lobby is, but I bet someone out there can connect the dots. Just kidding. ADR Adenoma detection rate, probably the most important factor when it comes to judging the performance of your endoscopist. This paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine September of last year is a reminder 
of the importance of adenoma detection rate when it comes to post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. The data comes from the Dutch Colon Cancer Screening Program, where everybody gets a FIT test every two years and a colonoscopy if it's positive. This study included 362 endoscopists and over 100,000 colonoscopies. Primary outcome was post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. Here are some numbers that are important. First one is after initial FIT test with over 113,000 colonoscopies. There were almost 10,000 colon cancer on that initial post-colonoscopy after a FIT test. Now, that's a heck of a lot of colon cancer. That's like about 1 in 10, 1 in 13 colonoscopies post-FIT had colon cancer found. Another important number, the ADR for this post-FIT group ranged between 40 and 82%, with the median being 67%. And here, ADR was inversely associated with post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer, but so was the surveillance interval, age, sex, and endoscopy setting. Also interesting is that many studies have shown that large adenomas are associated with missing polyps, but the follow-up three years had lower hazard ratio compared to the 10-year follow-ups. It's a little strange. A total of 426 post-colonoscopy colon cancers were diagnosed, about half as interval cancers and about half as non-interval cancers. Incidence increased to about 0.27% after five years. And the cumulative number of colon cancers diagnosed per 1,000 persons goes down from about 5 to about 2 with ADR at 55 when you improve it to about 70% or so. And this certainly helps support the hypothesis that missed adenomas are the ones responsible for these post-colonoscopy colon cancers. Now, why do I think this type of study is important? Two reasons. One is everyone needs to get better at finding polyps. Even at 70% ADR, there's still colon cancers that are being missed. And this is the second point. Even if you're the best endoscopies in the world, some of your patients will, without a doubt, end up with colon cancer. It's just sad, but it is true. It is important, very important, to warn your patients about this and deliver a message that we may lower the risk, but we can never eliminate the risk of colon cancer, even under the best circumstances. So you should tell your patient there's still about 1 in 300 to 400 people will get colon cancer in the next five years after colonoscopy. That number comes from the 0.27% in this study. Another important point, what you should aim for in terms of your ADR after a FIT test. Let's try to shoot above the median in this study, above 67% would be my guess. One big caveat, however, here to keep in mind is that the cutoff of what they consider to be positive fit test, meaning how much blood do you need in your stool sample, is pretty high bar compared to some of the other fit test programs, which could explain why the rates of colon cancer at first colonoscopy were so high in this study. And this would also explain why the Dutch endoscopists have a, such a high ADR compared to other countries. So if you aim for EDR, say, 60% plus overall for fit positives, you'll probably be in good company. And of course, you got to remind your patients that the absolute chance of colon cancer between 2 and 5 per 1,000 persons over 5 years, at least after colonoscopy, that was done for fit positive reasons. Enough about this paper. Let's move on. What do we say about celiac disease? The cure is worse than the disease. Gluten-free diet is very hard. Many companies tried various approaches to come up with a solution for gluten. One is to use enzymes to break down gluten in the stomach to minimize small bowel exposure. Litaglutinase is one product, and this is one paper titled Litaglutinase Protects the Mucosa and Attenuates Symptom Severity in Patients with Celiac Disease 
exposed to a gluten challenge. And as you may have guessed it, it may have worked a little bit. This was a randomized phase 2 trial of celiac patients who were randomized to 1200 milligrams of this new enzyme with gluten exposure versus placebo. Primary endpoint was change in height of the villi in the duodenum. And secondary endpoints were symptoms, about 20 patients in each group. So the results. There's some interesting data analysis when it comes to exactly what happened with the villi of the patients on lidoglutinase compared to placebo, with the authors stating that there's an 88% reduction of worsening, whatever that means. But it looks like it may not be statistically significant. That's too bad. Again, only 20 patients. But when it comes to symptoms, there was a big difference in how many patients reported bloating, abdominal pain, and loose stools. So there may be hope after all. I really hope they come up with some sort of an enzyme that kind of helps patients feel a little better especially if they know they're going to be exposed to gluten. Wouldn't it be cool if you could take a pill in case you don't know the celiac content of a meal? The enzyme would take care of it just in case. That would be amazing, but I guess more research needed. Okay, another AI polyp detection paper. This one comes from St. Mark's Hospital in London, published in Endoscopy in December of last year. Title is Evaluation of Real-Time Computer-Aided Polyp Detection System During Screening Colonoscopy, AI Detect Study. Why does this paper stand out? Well, long story is that it is a prospective randomized controlled trial of using computer polyp detection system to increase polyp and ADR. They looked at over 600 patients and about 300 in each group. And the kicker here is that these are fit positive patients as part of the bowel cancer screening program in the UK. Primary outcome was polyp detection rate, PDR. In this analysis, hyperplastic rectosimoid polyps were not included as part of the analysis as apparently in the UK, they just leave them in. Secondary outcomes were ADR and SSL, serrated polyp detection rate, and combo of the two, which they call significant polyp detection rate. Here are the results. In the intention to treat analysis, there was no difference in polyp detection rate per colonoscopy, 3.3 versus 3.6 polyps. Borderline statistical significance of 0.05 was found for polyp detection rate of 85.7% for AI, versus 80% for control group. But looking at adenoma detection rate here, there was no difference, 71.4 versus 65%. And there was also no difference in adenomas per colonoscopy. When you combined adenomas and serrated polyp, there was a difference, 79 versus 71%. So detecting more polyps with AI. Procedure times were also same, which is interesting as I've seen a number of studies where procedure time was a little bit longer with AI. The idea being that, oh, you're so busy removing and looking at polyps. One of the criticisms of the paper was that endocuff vision, the little tentacle device, you put it on the end of the scope to open up the folds, which is supposedly helps you increase your polyp detection skills. And these were used in over 70% of the cases, which basically argues that this is the reason you reach the ceiling of detection of polyps. That's why you observe no difference between the two groups. And it is a valid criticism. I mean, anything above 70% of adenoma detection is kind of, you know, how much better can you really get? And there was a paper showing that gains in ADR between endocuff and AR are basically the same. So this is a valid criticism. But the fact remains, I guess, there is a setting where AI won't be as useful as people claim it is, especially in setting where ADR is north of 60%. And it all depends on how much it costs to add AI to your system. If it's almost free or part of your Olympus scope, I guess it makes sense to get it, but if it costs thousands of dollars, I'm not sure if it's gonna be very cost-effective. 
There's a matter of fatigue, which I think is the strongest argument for use of computer-aided polyp detection, meaning that as you near the end of the day, you get a bit lazy and maybe miss some polyps. Not me, of course, but, you know, these other endoscopists. And maybe CAD software helps you overcome that. And this was not addressed here, so this story continues. I don't know, I kind of like the idea of AI. If done right, I think it could be a wonderful addition. Well, there you have it. Episode 61 of GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology podcast. I've learned that it may be possible to reuse PPIs for patients with refractory eosinophilic esophagitis. Then we went over the clinical practice update of what to do when you find a subepithelial lesion in the GI tract. We also learned that prune juice is awesome in randomized clinical trial. ADR after fit test should be very high. There are some enzymes maybe on the horizon for those with celiac disease. And that computer-aided polyp detection system may hit a ceiling in certain clinical settings and may not be so useful. Thanks again for listening. Questions, comments, suggestions, or new papers, please send them to info at gipros.com. If you haven't already, write a review for the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.